This is Thomas DePolo. This is Max. This is Kevin Ham. Hey, this is Jake Cook. Hi, this is William Roy. You're listening to The Green Box. Today on Greenbox, we are doing an interview with Caleb Stokes. Caleb is a podcaster and game designer of note. He has created uh, numerous scenarios for uh, games such as Delta Green, uh, numerous uh, system agnostic mystery and horror scenarios, uh, his own, a couple of his own games, uh, Red Markets, a uh, game of zombie horror economics that absolutely should not be as fun as it is given the premise uh a an, i think a new game that you that you were that you working on or just dropped recently about um it's like a house but with wizards uh yeah that's phase anatomy a uh, melodramatic medical mystery hell yeah uh, and uh the pdf is out now and i'm uh waiting on print proofs so it should be available soon sweet and also some official work for arc dream starting with uh what was it uh, lover in the ice one of the aforementioned mm-hmm. system agnostic modules that was later released as official Delta Green scenario. Also, and, one of two Delta Green scenarios that's made me physically ill reading it. Congrats. Yeah. <laughs> Yay. And also a couple of uh, additional products now God's Teeth, the famous actual play being um, the, 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 the module that was used for the, the famous actual play now uh, in playable campaign form. And. The other one being the re-release of the original Delta Green book using the new system. Uh, yeah, I, I came on officially as of the Conspiracy Kickstarter. Um, so I'm, I'm freelancing pretty much full-time for Arc Dream now, uh, in addition to doing my own stuff at Heaven on Games. Nice. And your actual play, God's Teeth, I think that the first episode of that is, my guess, the most listened-to piece of Delta Green media maybe ever. I think that that is probably where a lot of people get their idea about what Delta Green is. Um, yeah, uh, it, it kind of came to me when we got back from Gen Con and uh, we first had the playtest rules of Delta Green, the RPG, in its own system. And I ran a couple of things in that. Uh, and then by the time the real book came out, I wanted to run uh, a campaign. And uh, I was uh, working in a... Uh, home for uh, children that were in state-mandated care at the time, and uh, I just read Countdown, so it was pretty bleak, um, but I'm glad people liked it. It was just well-timed with the release of the new system, so I got very lucky. So did you write that for Delta Green, or did you write that generally and then happened, like, did you have the idea and then generally when Delta Green came up, decided to fit it in there? Um, I had the idea for Delta Green. Uh, I, I wanted to run it in that system, and uh, but I originally just ran it as a campaign frame for my friends on Role Playing Public Radio. Um, but by the time Delta Green: The Labyrinth came out, uh, like a lot of people in the comments were just like, "When are we getting God's Teeth? When are we getting God's Teeth?" Um, not knowing I did not work for them. <laughs> uh, so um, direct those comments out. to Art Dream Publishing, and eventually they'll bring you on. Yeah, I, I mean, that's how I got work from Eclipse Phase 2. Uh, it's sort of my back door into applying for jobs, I guess. Right, because you wrote podcasting. the Devotee is one of the one of the only modules for Eclipse Phase, because it didn't have very many. Uh, yeah, yeah, that was for, uh, I believe, the Transhuman Kickstarter. It was a uh, stretch goal for that. Because so, you, um, you and- with no evil, are also 
I think, one of people's only exposures to Eclipse Phase. Um, yeah, RPPR does a lot of good work in getting systems that aren't D&D actual plays out there. So, uh, again, we, we got very lucky. We went to Gen Con. We just got the book. It was very cool looking. Uh, I, I still think it took us like two years to get up the guts to start running it because it is a pretty uh, crunchy system. What I remember about your first episodes of that show you did is pretty much the same experience that everyone has with Eclipse Phase, which is where the players pretty obviously have not read the massive lore document and are just constantly getting torpedoed, their plans torpedoed by setting elements that they... Because I think your, your first your first recording was, was Think Before Asking. This is the one I first one I remember. Just constantly getting yeah. blindsided by stuff that, like, yeah, hypothetically, they would know if they'd read the book, but realistically, there's no way they're going to read a 200-page lore filibuster. Um, yeah, uh, we ran into that. Uh, that's a great scenario by Anders Sandberg. Um, he, he, I love his stuff. One of my favorites, as a matter of fact. Yes. Uh, he, he, the guy from Saturday Night Live? <laughs> the one no, no, different one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, no, Anders is, I believe he's like a fellow at some like legitimate think tank he he's a he's stuff. a professor yeah. of, of of philosophy i think he's he's been cited in a couple of science articles i happen to have read I'm like oh hey, professor anderson who that is um yeah but they're all futurism papers <laughs> yeah, yeah disguised as uh, rpg scenarios so um yeah i kind of dumped in the deep end of the pool there but you know it worked out i'm glad we ran a couple one shots before i started a campaign um, but I mean, it's it, once you do read the 200 page lore document, that is a fantastic game. I got very lucky there too in posting it around the time uh, a, a book came out. But yeah, we did like 26 sessions of No Evil, I think. It was it was a long one. God's Teeth is decidedly shorter. Uh, it's, the book is just three scenarios, but it's a campaign frame um, for putting other scenarios in there. The thing that I recall about God's Teeth is that the first episode is, I think, the one that most people listen to, and it's the one that I listen to, and it's it's a quite a good episode. It's quite a good a good um, thing to listen to. But if I recall correctly, the actual scenario is a lot of really great flavor detail around go to location and shoot man. And one of the things that I was really wondering about is what the process is of taking something that's designed to sound pretty good in a two hour time slot and be fun, but not necessarily super mechanically dense and build that out to a full campaign that you give to other people to run and play. Um, yeah. So it, it had to do with my conception of, uh, the the antagonist uh, the the nameless god in God's Teeth uh, and the the main thing I was really harping on is that uh, I can't remember if it was Greg or Dennis at one time but during one of the Gen Con panels he says that the the main thing about Delta Green is that it's fated like um, and he, and he what he means by that is like inevitability like um, you, you know what happens to your character was always going to happen because uh, when you face up against you know powers this immense and inhuman um you know anything that happens to humanity was already written you're not really stopping anything you're you're kind of you know you're you're bailing water on the titanic so to speak um and so god's teeth is really about fatalism um it is it is about you know you don't have choices the, those are a myth um but the the trick of doing that is how do you tell that story in such a way that doesn't uh, obliterate player agency to the point where they don't want to play yeah, I was gonna say, how do you? So that's cool. How do you make it fun? <laughs> uh, well, you, you do. You do what Delta Green is. It's like you let them do whatever the hell they want. Like, um, and that God's Teeth does do that. But the main problem is, is that um, whatever you wanted to do has already been factored in. Like, you, you don't live your life 
to see what choices you make. You live your life to see why you made the choices you are going to make. Like you're, <laughs> you're learning why the choice was already made, not, not necessarily deciding what you're going to do. Um, but you're a human being, so it never feels that way to you. Um, so, uh, yeah, that, that's basically the premise of God's teeth. Um, every time you do something to try and get out from under what you're supposed to be doing, um, you realize that that was already factored in and brings you further inside. Uh, so that, that's sort of the premise of, um, the horror of God's teeth. It's, it's a horror of fate, a, a horror of destiny. Yeah. My contention has always been that Delta Green is not really a cosmic horror game. It's a, a personal horror game, much like, uh, Unknown Armies or, um, I'm sure there's other examples I could think of, because all of the best Delta Green content is is not, oh, we're grains of sand on an infinite beach or whatever. It's about very intimate interactions between uh, humans and wizards and creatures and things that are more immediately interactive. Uh, yeah, I, I think uh, in one version of God's Teeth in, in an afterward I wrote, it's I, the thing I like best about Delta Green is that it's not austere. Like you're doing Lovecraft stuff, but you don't have to do it in a you know abandoned manse for your third inbred cousin of New England reading Latin. Like um, when you're talking about cosmic horror and universal dread, it finds you in the trailer park. It finds you in the clown themed strip club. It finds you <laughs> in the parking lot of Walmart. Like, um, yeah. So and that tends to be more where I write. Um, so. Uh, yeah. And then the other, the other thing is that, um, the premise of Delta Green is that it is everywhere. It is all over the federal government. It is a conspiracy with many tendrils. Um, but, you know, people are gamers. Like, so that means to say that, you know, you're a Delta Green member, but you're probably in the FBI. You probably have a lot of firearm skills, like that, that kind of stuff. Um, and, uh, I, it's not quite Department of Education Delta Green, but, uh, I think it's as close as we're going to get in God's Teeth because there's other part of the government and, uh, let me tell you, as a guy who taught for a bunch of years, there's plenty of evil to be found outside the security state apparatus. Um, I mean, I would consider Department of Education to be part of the security apparatus. I, I consider, I consider <laughs> yeah, basically fair, all yeah. federal agencies at this point to be just tendrils of the octopus. Maybe, mm -hmm. maybe that's a little, uh, maybe tipping my hand a little bit. One, one thing that I did, I did notice though, just from the stuff that I've seen, because I haven't, I haven't read the full God's Teeth, because I don't play Delta Green that often, but I'm still holding out hope that someone will like run it. But um, mm -hmm. I've I've kvetched in the past that the that there's parts of New Delta Green that can feel almost a little bit sterile in their attempt to hew very far away from the Gonzo grindhouse horror of the original game. New Delta Green is tilting very much more into like lone wolves and unnatural covers itself up by by being so corrosive that it just deletes the, its own problem from existence and. A lot of a lot of stuff that's that's designed to push for a very gritty and low level experience that fits a certain tone mm -hmm. at times can make the game feel almost lifeless because like okay what happened to Agent Nancy well she was too much fun so she got locked in a cage forever or what happened to Jensen Wu well he was too much fun so he got his he got his mind uploaded to a box or something but what I wanted to ask you about was I think you have a vision of Delta Green that is, it feels slightly different from the one of the primary dev team? Uh, I, yeah, I'm sure it is. Uh, I mean, I, I'm a little younger than those guys, for certain. Um, <laughs> uh, 
and I didn't come up uh, in the you know scrappy days of like ninety splat books and you know trying to invent a game that isn't D and D that people have heard of. Um, so uh, yeah, there's there's stuff uh, in the lore that um, when I was just doing it for myself, I would completely ignore. Uh, when I first ran Lovers of the Ace, I hadn't read Delta Green as a book. I just knew the premise and that it was a percentile system. Um, and I, I, I largely think that's how handlers should approach it in their games, unless they're everyone's a fan of like the meta plot behind everything. So you talked about Wu and Nancy, and uh, I have since read everything in a six-month uh, blinding journey of tracking down old publications. Um, but um, yeah, I, I think uh, it is. And I think Dennis will back this up. There isn't a Delta Green idea. Like, it only exists at the table. And then when you factor that into the fact that there's, you know, fucking time travel and shit. <laughs> like, um, I was referring can... more tonally than this idea of hewing to establish canon. Okay. Um, because because you, you, you must have noticed this because you're now in charge of the rewrite of the original book. That mm -hmm. the old game had lots of silly bullshit, but it was also a lot livelier. Uh, yeah, I think that's, uh, a lot of it was pulled from Chaosium stuff. Right, um, and there's that issue of, of the IP as well, and making sure that, that everything that needs to be replaced with original Delta Green content is replaced. Uh, yeah, so I'm not doing a ton of stuff to change the tone of the previous book, and in fact, I'm not touching a ton of the writing itself. Uh, I'm updating stats to the new system, nice. that is a big thing I do. Uh, I'm cutting out, uh, IP stuff that we don't have from Chaosium. And yeah, I, I do occasionally go to bat for like, you know, we have, everybody has a ceremonial dagger in one of those books. <laughs> Everyone's got a magic dagger. It's the pocket knife that everybody carries around. Yeah, that's around. the, um, that's the, what, the, the resurrected wizards in the Karatekia that all get an SS dagger. Yeah, but like theirs is just SS for the same magic dagger. And then like there's 50 other cults in there that everybody's got. It's like your pocket knife of the COC. Well, universe. it's like it's so. like how in in uh, <laughs> Pathfinder after a certain point, everyone needs a plus one magic weapon because otherwise you can't get through DR. Yeah. Yeah, um, so I, I, I changed some of that stuff, but I, I'm not changing the writing, because, I mean, obviously the writing's good. We're still talking about it, um, which is not the case of many games in the 90s uh, that came out. Um, so uh, I, I'm trying to leave as much of the original text there and tone as possible, uh, and I certainly don't find it too gonzo or crazy. Um, but yeah, I think a lot of that is just gaming technology less than the lore. Um, I, I just don't think back when the game was originally designed, like lethality rules, that great thing of, uh, Greg's edition, um, bonds, which are such a wonderful tool for horror, um, not in just threatening them, but in grounding your character in a normal so that you can truly see the deviation of the unnatural. Um, you've got a number of things that I just think, um, didn't really exist as mechanical concepts in the RPG space when the game was first written. Um, and so, yeah, in, in regards for the, the toneness, uh, of it, uh, I, I'm not doing a ton to change the, the vision of the original authors because I, I respect that. Um, but yeah, that the Chaosium, you know, Cthulhu eats D10 investigators, um, I think Shane and Dennis and Glancy and all those guys did a great job purging that sort of um, mechanical absurdity out of it in the original book. But, you know, it was still the 90s. Everyone was making D20 splat books with just pictures of guns in them. Like, you, you, they did what they could. <laughs> and uh, I just see myself kind of continuing that. You're definitely not going to find any grays or anything fun thing like that in God's Teeth. I'll tell you that much. Um <laughs> 
but uh, that that's all I can really say about the tone stuff. Something I wanted to ask you, Caleb. Um, how mm-hmm. could could you describe your journey as as a tabletop RPG man that ended up at Delta? Like, how did you come to Delta Green? Um, well, I've only been playing uh, RPGs for like I guess it's up to like the twelve or thirteen years now. But I, I'm not one of those. You person. say only, but like. We're we're getting old, man. Yeah, we're getting I, old. I, I'm not one of those people who's just like it was 1986. I was four, and I yeah. picked up the the red box, like which is the story I hear from like most people, even people younger than me. Um, I came to it very late. Uh, it was my first year teaching. I had no friends because I was working 70 hour weeks, and I got invited to go to a game group. I thought we were just playing. Um, and then I figured out it was podcast, and from there, <laughs> I just kept going. Um, so, yeah, I've, I've sort of never done RPGs outside of the actual play space, um, and I do have a creative writing background, so uh, when it turned out I could get around some people and engage in creative things, uh, I just sort of became addicted to it real fast, and I was running games inside the year, and I think I'd published my first book uh, two years after that, so... Um, it was it was sort of a whirlwind. Uh, I was carried on the coattails of Ross Payton, who's been doing AP since 2007, like one of the original um, actual play podcasts uh, with RPPR. Um, and from there, uh, my interests skewed pretty heavily to there. So they were interested in horror. Um, I was very interested in Delta Green because I found that uh, time period uh, being able to modernize it interesting. Uh, and I found the the marrying to the U.S. security state and the ability to sort of talk about, you know, that as well uh, and in many ways link it to concepts of, you know, dread and uh, horror. Um, it just it really spoke to me creatively. So uh, that's how I came to to be here. But otherwise, it's just uh, I run games for my friends and I record them and um, some of them end up being popular. And that that is sort of my backdoor way of applying for jobs uh, as a freelance writer. So. That's better than the way I became the freelance mapper for Delta Green, which was Shane Shane ran Night Visions, and he had like a map that someone had clearly drawn on like a napkin that had been scanned. And I was like, I was like, hey, this is you, you're bad. like, hey, you know how we could fix this? Let's put all of the important content in the bottom right corner and just have a massive yeah. amount of empty space on the map for no reason. Yeah, right. I was like, this is this is bad. You want me to make it good? And he's like, sure. And I was like, will you pay me? <laughs> and he was like, okay. Yeah, it's the second question. That's a good one. Um, yeah, the first answer is always yes. You got to follow up with that second question. Yeah. So here's my here's my question about about the the conspiracy book is um, well books at this point. Yeah, books. Yeah. So <laughs> so you you were placed. I think you were placed in charge of the the shotgun scenarios. Yes. Uh, so I I've read through uh, quite a few years uh, with, along with Brett. Uh, quite a few years of entrance into the SATCON scenario contest. Um, I really took my cue from Brett because I realized I was kind of, the you know, uh, the late guy. You know, there's people who've been writing shotgun scenarios since, you know, the early aughts. I'm sorry, who, for for our listeners, who is Brett? Uh, Brett Kramer. Um, he, he, he's, he's been helping out a lot with editorial duties, and he's been helping with the shotgun scenario stuff. And I, I was also reading through it with Shane. Um, so the main thing I wanted to do is respect the fact that I was the new guy on the block and, like, didn't know... Um, you know, all of the wonderful stuff that had been fan created and needed some sort of curational help there. Um, and so, uh, we've been working on that. We have a list. Um, uh, my understanding is that the recent, uh, contest had some, uh, problems, uh, voting wise. 
Um, so I'm reading, I'm going to be reading through those scenarios, uh, rather than just doing the curational stuff, uh, from the, you know, finalists and, uh, you know, very popular pieces in past years. Uh, I'll probably take those all as if they just came into my inbox. Um, but yeah, my, my goal for that is really standardizing it. Um, so of the ones that we're publishing, I'm not really trying to determine, um, who's better, who's not, uh, because I think the fans do that pretty frequently, uh, with the shotgun scenario contest and, and they've been playing them for years and stuff gets published in the unspeakable oath. I, I think there's a lot of, uh, well, not anymore. It doesn't. Yeah. Yeah. But they did. There's, yeah, there's sure. a lot of data on the table of what people like and what they want to play. And I want to respect that. Uh, but my goal is going to have to be is that, hey, it's not a contest anymore. So if it's going to make it easier to run, we need to add words to that um, and, and make them uh, a little bit more established. Not a lot. So they're not a shotgun scenario. But we also, uh, when we're publishing a book, you're not beholden to the artificial constraints of a contest. And then the second thing I'm going to do is try to standardize the format, uh, which it does not happen um, because a lot of them were written pre Delta Green, the RPG. So a lot of the stats are are, are no longer uh, applicable to the previous game. Uh, we still get Call of Duty stats oh, yeah. in yeah. 2022 contests. So. Yes. I think I, out of I habit, imagine. a lot of people still refer, still use language like Keeper just because just they're used to it. Keeper and Investigators are the two yeah. big ones to let you yeah. know. Yeah. Yes. And then um, there's, you know, there's just ordering stuff. You know, modern scenarios often do the truth first so that the the handler has an idea of what everything is going on. And then you reverse engineer your player's experience for there from that. Uh, I think that's especially important in God's teeth. But sometimes that's not in the game. It's just meant to imply it. Or sometimes it's at the very end. Um, yeah, so. so that's something that is that very often gets cut for word count is the executive summary from shotgun scenarios. Yeah. And yes. it like for me is an instant turn off because you are sacrificing the thing that lets me understand whether your scenario is worth running. Um, so a lot of it, when we get to that part of the project is going to be on, on my part, not just curational, but, um, I'm going to be moving things around. Uh, I'm going to be adding text and, uh, changing text. So that is in line with the current rules. And, uh, I'm also going to be collecting it because, uh, I, I think it'll be a more useful book if you not only have shotgun scenarios, but they're, they're listed by premises, not, not alphabetically. Like what goes wrong when you go to a green box, you know, here's five scenarios that things go terribly wrong when you go to the green box, you know, what goes wrong with retired Delta green agents? Here's five scenarios in the HR files, <laughs> Delta green. Yeah. Um, I, I think that is my primary goal for that project is to make things standardized and deployable. That's kind of a fun way to organize them by theme. That's good. Yeah, there are definitely genres in shotgun scenarios as in terms of this is what happens when you go to a green box. This is the messed up stuff your friendly has been doing when you weren't looking. And that even lets you do like Gonzo as one. Well, here are things that don't really fit in the yeah. world, but they're just so fun. Wild card like, scenarios. You should run them. That yeah. was going to be my my question is because I think realistically a lot of a lot of the stuff that that has placed highly or won in the last the last few years but really in the whole history of the contest is stuff that probably doesn't fit with the current editorial vision of Delta Green. Like I'm thinking about I'm thinking about the the ones that I've written that have been the best the most well received like my big fat deep one wedding or dream merchants mm -hmm. and those are scenarios that I think are super fun but realistically don't fit into the kind of grim and gritty world of present day DG so so is is there going to be a further editorial pass to try and harmonize that or are we gonna just accept that some of our of our 
shotgun scenarios that get picked up will be a bit zanier than what normal Delta Green allows. Uh, they're, they're probably not going to be too zany in regards to the titles. Um, you know, joke titles, reference titles, probably getting changed <laughs> if, if you want to go in. Sorry. Um, and there are a lot of those. Uh, <laughs> um, so that, that zaniness might go away. I, I don't plan on changing aspects of plot, though, um, or, or, or tone. Um, that said, maintaining the tone of the game is uh, extremely important for running the game um, because uh, I don't know if you've heard, but I've, I've run a lot of Delta green and it is, it is one of the funniest systems I've ever played. Um, I have never laughed harder than I have at a Delta green game. Um, I've also never felt like worse or more scared or more on edge or uh, like more engaged. Um, but the difference of that is like maintaining the tone at the table. So like uh, if it's a one shot and uh, my, for instance, in a reading ga- recent game, my pilot uh, crit fails a piloting role in a plane. <laughs> um, that is hilarious. Like that, that is just very funny to me. And we all had a great laugh at that. Um, and I, I've crit failed with a flamethrower in a moving van full of explosives before. And I laughed so hard. I threw up a little bit. <laughs> Um, you know, you know, we've, it is a darkly humorous game in a lot of ways. Um, I called it Eeyore humor. Um, it, it is, uh, you know, dark comedy. Um, but the, the only way to prevent that is be like, okay, guys, we're going to try and tell a horror story. Um, and that's a choice that a handler can make. Uh, I don't think it's a choice that the text should make for you. I think the text should be consistent. Uh, and I think the tech should help you probably off with the scarier tone of things because that's harder to do. Um, it, I, I perfectly find it pretty easy to have a good time with my friends, no matter what we're doing. Um, but you know, if you want to maintain like the creepy details or, um, tell a story that's about something in addition to being an entertaining horror story, uh, I think that's what the tech should do for you. So yeah, I mean, there's stuff that's probably too goofy and won't go in there. Uh, I, I will say that much, but, um. I'm not going to be de-goofying anything, if that makes sense. Like, if there's if there's something fun in there or zany or wild, I'm not going to be like, well, no, we're going to cut it out and make it more sad bastard Caleb Stokes stuff. I'm not going to do that. Well, I'm, I'm sorry that because of the voter fraud, you now have to read all the entries in the year that got the most submissions. <laughs> <laughs> oh, don't worry about that. Uh, it I don't have to read very long to know whether it goes in or not. <laughs> and I hate to say that. Uh, yeah, when I was in college, I had to do a lot of work for literary magazines for my uh, English degree. And um, the fact of the matter is, is we're going to have like 50 or 60 people contributing to this book. I cannot send out drafts to folks like not on the Delta Green timeline. It's too slow already. If I'm waiting for emails for people to give me back contents, this will never happen. So I'm going to have to fix it and just be like, hey, here's what I fixed it. It either goes in or it doesn't sign here or don't. <laughs> Um, so that, that's what it's going to have to be. And as a result of that, since I'm not having to send back comments, since I'm not having to do it, I can go pretty fast. Um, uh, so yeah, I, I will be. And, and in regards to that, if I'm reading it and I'm like, error, 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 misspelling error, it doesn't matter if it's good or not. I'm done. <laughs> like, cause I have to do hundreds of these <laughs> and, uh, it's basic publication stuff. Well, here's here's actually an interesting question that I didn't I didn't think of until you just mentioned that. But what's um aside from obvious you know spelling and grammatical errors, what's what do you what do you look for in like the first couple of sentences of a shotgun scenario, whether it's gonna be good or not? Um, I mean, outside of like yeah the the mechanics stuff, which is my first start. Uh, if I get past the mechanics stuff, I'll usually finish it. Um, but but for me, a shotgun scenario really excels in 
uh, deployability. It's ready for the table. Like, uh, hey, everybody's coming over. I need to play a game. Uh, one of the guest games to play, in in my opinion, for a pick up and play as a one shot is Delta Green because you know you've got the the nine hundred uh, the nine hundred long character. Oh, <laughs> lists no, that's not good. Those, please, those, yeah, please, those were procedurally generated. That. Some of them aren't even usable. Yeah, or, yeah, or but legal. I mean, it takes three minutes to fix yeah, yeah. it, and uh, it's not like they're going to be around for long. That's true. Um, <laughs> Caleb, how do you feel philosophically about including pregens in a in a shotgun scenario that um, because their stat blocks not included in the word count? Um, oh, pregens for the for the shotgun scenario? Yeah, like specifically designed because a lot of, a lot of scenarios we're seeing now have a very specific premise. Like you are Delta Green, you are SV eight agents in nineteen forty eight, or you are M Epic agents or whatever, and it makes them it makes them pick up and playable to include the pregens, but it also means that you're getting away from this original format of an ultra short scenario. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, the the main thing for that is if I was doing pregens for a scenario like that, it would have to be required in the premise. Uh, I'm not against that though. Uh, I, you know, I just ran a game where you had to where half the teams were pilots and the other half were uh, deep sea divers. So you can't really just be like do anything you want and then you show up with a forensic accountant. Well, because I know that <laughs> Ross's latest submission about the. Um the house with the exterminators ah uh, yeah was yeah, was a pregen was a pregen based one and i felt i felt that one would have been was was right on the cusp of greatness and if the pregen just had a bit more personality mm-hmm. it would have been like one of my all-time favorites and he did write one of my all-time favorites he wrote bestow, bestow which i think is fantastic yes I, I i very like i like bestow quite a bit as well um hint uh so uh but yeah the pregen have you go seen in the there. picture of ross holding the map that my players drew for bestow <laughs> nice it was so fucking i showed it to him he just laughed uh that's great um yeah that was a fun scenario to play i've played that one uh I, I think that has a good chance of going in there um but with uh with pregens uh it, yeah I, that's one of those things that you would want to add now that we don't have a character limit um beyond like the end of the book uh, so another thing I would be considering doing. Well, standardizing pregens all into like the one page character sheets and stuff, so they're all like easily printable and, and doable. Yeah, it's, it's also very easy to do in the current system. The the stat block is fairly contained. Uh, he said, having worked with hundreds of them at this point. Um, yeah, so it, you know, it's not quite as uh, onto the second page of this pregen like the old coc stuff. Like what? Let me further describe the powers of the magic dagger. Uh, you don't you don't have to go for further than that. Um, so yeah. I, however, I don't think I probably will be doing that for even most of the scenarios because again, uh, I think for that I am mostly intrigued on you know you can get it to the table fast even if it's with your crappy pregen characters and as Ross says, I'm about to send another FBI agent to hell for a one shot. Um, yeah. <laughs> uh, that, that I think that is the, the appeal of a shotgun scenario. You know, it's there, it's, it's carrier ready. Uh, you're, you're good to go and you can play a fun game that night on just this premise. Um, cause like you said, like the first scenario of God's teeth is like, there's people in this house, go kill them. Um, and I didn't even invent the people in the house. That's all glancy, uh, in countdown, making a, wonderful uh group of humans that as i read about i wanted to murder so that is the basic starting uh, inciting incident of god's teeth um but that said you know everything sounds easier <laughs> than it actually is when you actually have to go do it in delta green um and you know let's go kill some unarmed 
um, daycare workers, it, it ends up not going that way. Uh, and that's, that's sort of the, the surprise and appeal. I say, I just, I just fought them like a week ago and they had guns. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, so if that was a mistake, I'd like some uh, hit points back. <laughs> uh, but yeah, um, that, that's where I'm at on that. So, so, uh, in keeping with, uh, beating him up with questions about the future of Delta green, um, uh, I know you mentioned, uh, so there is a Delta green discord. It is, uh, pretty dead um but i know you had talked about trying to revitalize it and turn it into a you know better online space can you talk anything about uh about uh, that yeah I, I need to start working on that um i was very focused on the twitch and i will be doing more twitch ap's uh for delta green we'll, we'll put a link in the description of the episode to that yes uh i continued the insulin impulse campaign on um delta green dead channels so i'm doing that but uh we do want to go back to running one shots and a few games on twitch every once in a while um but yeah i need to do the discord my main thing is that the the night at the opera discord is very active um and i don't want to do anything to pull away from that uh yeah i didn't want to be like well thanks for taking care of it kid but the official server's here now i didn't want to it seemed like a real asshole thing to do there's a there's a lot of reluctance from firms to create a space that they then have to moderate and be responsible for. It's like why Roll20 doesn't want to actually run a forum, even though they do anyways for like LFG and stuff. I mean, that's part of my job, though, so I'm fine doing it. Uh, yeah, and I, I have I have a number of friends who will help moderate. So you're sort of a, a community manager role then, as well as the the actual content creation? Uh, yeah, I, I do consider myself in that role sometimes, as, as much as Delta Green has one. Uh, I don't run their social media, but for instance, the trailer for The Conspiracy, uh, I made that. Uh, you know, I'm doing the Twitch outreach, and uh, the Discord was always going to be part of that, but then I saw uh, how relatively dead that was compared to Night at the Opera, and I'm like, well, I mean... What am I going to try and do? Steal from the successful operation? But um, yeah, I, I am fine doing that. I think it's good for the game. Um, I will have certain curational things I do that some people aren't going to disagree with. But um, I mean, everyone knows Dennis's uh, <laughs> protocol for people you disagree with online. I'm not going to be that extreme, but uh, I was not going to. I was not going to even touch that subject. <laughs> but <laughs> yeah, uh, but like that said, I have. Um, I have discretion to do that because I am paid by the company. Uh, so I would be happy to, to do things. And there's like a, I mean, there's a need for that. Cause like we, like there are some things about Delta green that I don't like, and I'm happy to express them freely in that of the opera. I would not go to the Delta green discord and talk shit, you know, but there's also no place like people come in with a rules question and you can get a hundred opinions, but you know, no one's going to give you a straight answer on errata. Mm -hmm. So like having a place to get that, having a place to get official news and stuff is, that's never going to be none yeah. of the opera. It'd be interesting to see a Delta Green server that was like a little less grog grognardy. And I think that that's sort of what the Jackson Elias server is, to be honest. Mm -hmm. Or maybe the RPBR server. I mean, that'll that'll be mainly my goal in the redesign. Like we we're gonna have we're gonna have some cordons, some paddocks. If if you want to talk about gun fondling, that's its thread, and it stays in there. <laughs> and we, I don't want to see it. Thank in general. God. <laughs> like, uh, I, I've yeah. There's and then dealing with comments on Kickstarters. You know, there there's there's certain subbreeds of the fandom that uh, are maybe not um, exactly on my wavelength. Uh, that's not going to matter as long as they're not bothering anybody. But I think the main thing about Discord moderation is um, everything in its right place. You you can't be you, you know, you got to know which thread to check, and uh, that that'll be my primary starting goal in terms of moderation. Um, but yeah, uh, I, I'm fine to start working on that. It's going to take a while. I haven't really moved forward with it, but um, yeah. 
happy to do so. Looking forward to it. And I don't think you're going to pull people away. People will just be in both because they serve different purposes. Yeah, I, yeah, I don't think it's going to be that big of a problem. Now, Will, you and I did an episode a while. This switch gears a little bit. You and I did an episode about the overlap between Delta Green and and just plain old science fiction. Yeah, that was something that I wanted to ask you about, Caleb, because I think your journey to the mythos is similar to mine. Because I also kind of came to it through Eclipse phase. Hmm, okay. So I I wondered if you had any thoughts about, I guess about like how how cosmic horror and science fiction themes kind of factor in to 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 the world of Delta Green. Like is that is that a, is that an area of interest for you in fiction? Uh, certainly. I uh, definitely when I am writing Delta Green skew more towards um, this is how this works in reality. Uh, Humans are going to see magic. Uh, that That is my approach. But I try to approach it not from a hard science fiction perspective. Uh, I'm not that smart or a scientist. Uh, but from a, a sort of practical reality perspective, it's just that the way this breaks reality is not something humans have ever discovered or will ever be capable of in a lot of ways. So um, I'm hearing a lot of Clark's third law coming off this conversation. Yeah, yeah I mean, it, it's, yeah, you talk about Clark. It's just, you know, that I, I hate to say that, uh, but it's it, it's a truism for a reason. Um, yeah. So, uh, yeah, often points in the editorial process, my, my, my contributions on that level get a little toned down. Um, and, and made a little bit more mystical, uh, for, for publication. Um, but yeah, I always work backwards from like, okay, how does this mechanically work? Um, and then there's so many levels of obfuscation and, you know, the darkness and abyss of space and time and, uh, human assumptions that make it, you know, as inscrutable as some dude painting a, you know, pentagram in blood and chanting in Latin. Um, and, but yeah, I always, uh, I th and I think that's the way Lovecraft did it too. You know, I think he was very much focusing on the anxiety of living in modernism. Um, there's anxiety of living in modernism, but I think two of his, two of his most famous stories, Whisper in the Dark and Mountains of Madness, are a big world building and lore filibuster wrapped up in a frame narrative. Mm -hmm. Mountains of Madness is my favorite Lovecraft. He story. has some that are that are like you said that are are very focused on the touching something that's beyond human comprehension, and then he has some that are here's how the Elder Things governed the ancient city. Here is all the wars they fought with the other Elamows. Here is how they reproduced. Here is their method of space travel. And I, I fucking love that. I thought that was a, a great story, and I like the contrast between. Here are the elder things. They are like human beings. They are atheist materialists who don't worship any gods. They built the city with their own tendrils. And look at that. They were the smartest guys in the room and they still got fucked. Mm -hmm. Versus here are the Migo. They are parasites who worship the great old ones. And look at that. They're doing just fine. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I, I do tend to come more from the sci-fi perspective. Uh, but that said, when you get down to the, the mutability and fragileness of human beings, um, yeah, basically, if without spoiling anything, uh, my my conception for the bad guy in God's Teeth is uh, might be the equivalent of a lost packet in a data transfer gone rogue. The description that I saw made it sound very similar to the Belt Builders from Millionaire Echo. Uh, I was actually pulling a lot from uh, Three Body Problem, 
Um, but right, but, yeah. But, yeah, I've only read the first one. Yeah, uh, he's only read the first two body problems. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, he's only read one body problem. <laughs> I like I like three body problem because there's there's like this horror element to it, and then you switch to the perspective of the A's, and it's like a Stanislaw Lem novel. Mm-hmm. It's like, well, we made it with one dimension. Okay, well now we made it with too many dimensions. <laughs> Make and then and then like them just executing the scientists over and over again when they fuck up. Yeah, yeah. So God's Teeth is basically a bunch of humans dealing with a, a lost packet doing a stack overrun error on reality. And but what it by the time humans get to it, you end up worshiping a cat god and feeding it blood. Like uh so that that is my uh general approach to most uh Delta Green scenarios. Like they are better than us. Like we you have to just accept that. Um they know what they're doing and you don't. Uh and that is that is where I approach most things uh in terms of how do you characterize the mythos? Um because I, I don't pretend to understand their motivations, uh and because that's part of cosmic horror, but I do like to understand like practically how does this manifest in the world so you can give a, a, a consistent horror that doesn't seem like you're just your handlers just fucking with you until you die yeah but i did dig your other conception of bast which was more i think focused on the negation of the self it's a a a, a thing that that acknowledges that it is more efficient to not be a a conscious feeling machine but to be a flesh automaton animated by neurotransmitters I remember there was at least a little of that in the first two episodes. Yeah, uh, the the main thing is that I, I like to, when I convey Bast, I like to convey this sense of will, of intent, uh, that is steering all of reality and you among it towards something. Um, but that is how it manifests to humans. Like, I don't even think Bast knows what it is. Like, I don't think it has a concept of self. So um, Bast is not a missile. Yeah, it is It is an algorithmic uh, tool that is uh, trying to achieve a singular purpose, um, and that manifests as, like, oh, God, it's it's coming for us. Uh, so, yeah, that that's how I like to think of those things. The, the ideas of self, ideas of, like, what you're for and against... Uh, I try to do everything I can to get outside a human headspace and defamiliarize that when I'm trying to characterize uh, something within the mythos. And then sometimes I just do Lover in the Ice, and there's big creepy ape monsters that are going to eat or do worse things to you. So Lover in the Ice is a a very, I think it's a good module. I think that it's a straightforward bug hunt at the core, but it has enough layers of investigation and flavor that it's fun instead of just being roll firearms. Mm -hmm. I will say this though, not to like impugn the artists who worked on it, but the Amante's design visually is one of the silliest things I've ever seen in an RPG. <laughs> it's really <Okay>. goofy. <laughs> yeah, like 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 it's a good, <laughs> like it's a really great description. I love 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 that like letter from knockoff Hunter S. Thompson about the the finding the creature in the Brazilian rainforest and like all the idols and worshiping mm-hmm. it. And then I, I look at the picture and it's got like the big smile and face and the ears. <laughs> yeah. Hey, there's Delta Green merch, uh, Amante plushie. Dude! Yeah, that's not getting approved, I'll tell you that much. No, that's great, because, like, <laughs> like Cthulhu, Cthulhu is, like, overexposed as fuck, and, like, Nyarlathotep, nah. but then, but then you got the Amante, and he's got, like, a big flot, no. Yeah, maybe, maybe not, <laughs> maybe not, yeah. Um, yeah, I just, uh, the main uh, premise, have you ever seen Freaks? It's it's a very I have old. Not. Oh wait 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 is that is that the old like circus um, yes. carnival? Yeah. Oh, is it is it Johnny Eck, the man born without a body? Uh, yeah. The image of something capable of running on its hands faster than a person can run on their legs 
uh, is just innately nightmarish to me. I I do like the concept. I like how it can brachiate around trees mm-hmm. using its two because it's super cut. Like yeah. that's part of that's I think part of why the design reads as as silly to me is that it's like a really bu- the torso of a really buff dude with like a little bat person head stapled onto the top <laughs> and then like the mind flayer three fingered hands yeah. and like a big big old floppy um, injector. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, so that, I mean, that's where the design came from. Uh, the original design in terms of art, uh, before Dennis did it for the Delta Green publication, uh, was, uh, for, done by, uh, Ian Moody, uh, who's another great RPG artist. Nice. What else, what has Ian worked on so that we can... Uh, Ian has worked in, uh, well, he, he did my game, um, No Security, uh, the systemless horror scenario set in the Great Depression. And then he has also done Dinosaurs in Space and a number of Greg Stolze projects. He, he's worked, uh, I believe he's worked with Arc Dream before on things like um, monsters and other childish things. He also does graphic design. So your your systemless horror modules, um, stuff like, I think it's what, Fishers of Men and uh, like Wives of March and those, those sorts of things? Yeah, uh, Bryson Springs is the first one, but yes. Uh, that one, that series of, I, that, that, that one was, was something that I think Stygian Fox really started doing later, which is writing these, uh, systemless wink, wink, it's actually for X game, uh, horror modules. But one thing that I thought was interesting is how your work there, I think you, didn't you end up running some of them like a dirty world and just having it be like a, a no mythos? Uh, yeah, the, the original one of Wise of March, uh, I, I ran at Dirty World and I just made him, um, a secret polygamist that had done a murder to hide it up. Um, nice. Uh, but yeah, uh, was that, was that the one with the clones? Yes. It has clones in Delta, if you, if you run it in something like Delta Green or COC. Yeah. I stole the description about like the pillowcase full of stuff for another, for another game. That was really evocative imagery. Oh, okay. Yeah. I stole the title, but mine is different because it's literally about the wives of people of from Arch Technology <laughs> that were murdered by Delta Green and are now going to get revenge as a superpowered group of MILFs with alien technology that ends up being a bit more harmful than helpful to them. <laughs> yeah. I mean, go for it. Um, but yeah, uh, <laughs> in regards to like wink, wink, yeah, I, I, I of course ran them in COC or something like that, but I always, I also ran them in fear itself. And, uh, once I published the book, I had people being like, I ran this in mage set in a, in a future cyberpunk arcology. And like, they, they just changed stuff to the point that like, well, why did you even need my scenario anymore? <laughs> well, Hey, recall, recall that origin, the original Delta green scenario convergence had a sequel that was written for cyberpunk 2020. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, it, but the, the main thing was, is just like, I realized as that was my first publication is like, it doesn't matter what you say in the text, like the gamer, the game doesn't exist until it's at the table. And, uh, part of the fun, of being a handler or a GM or a keeper or whatever you want to call it in that system is making it your own. Uh, and that's, that's a feature, not a bug. So uh, yeah, when I, I agree that system matters, uh, I, I do think that the current Delta green system tells a more horrific and more worthwhile story in a lot of ways than, um, you know, traditional COC and some other horror systems. Uh, I think if you're playing Dread, you're going to have a different game than if you're playing Eclipse Phase, for instance. Uh, but, you know, beyond system matters, but at that same time, not as much as people want to say, like, because some of that is marketing. Like, oh, I wouldn't sell yourself short, though, because I'll, I'll like shit on red markets as the day is long. <laughs> but ultimately, that is a game that has a really good macro level mechanical design. 
it's a case where I think a lot of the individual mechanics by themselves don't necessarily feel super great to play, but when you actually combine them all together, you get a system that is very functional and fun and where the progression mechanics all make sense. It's sort of similar to the to the the Warhammer fantasy RPGs where there's a lot of stuff that in isolation seems very it's difficult to see why it's there, but then when you actually play the game and you see how the systems interact with each other, you you realize that it's actually very intentionally designed. Well, thank you. I think Ross was right about the holding doors, though. <laughs> Fair enough. Um, but yeah, with, with no security, my basic premise was that um, the hardest part of any of that is the story. Like, I, I know many people who are quite familiar with a system and could take anything their players want to do in that system and come up with whether it needs a roll or not and what to roll and what the modifier is because they're all very familiar. Uh, and I think a lot of groups that play regularly, uh, that is almost um, reflex for your your ever GM. Uh, and so the thought I the value I think it could have was providing, you know, the investigation, the narrative, the plot, the tone um, faster than you can come up with one off the top of your head. Um, so, yeah, that's why I didn't make them system. I also made them systems because I didn't have the rights to anything because I was just some guy <laughs> doing a Kickstarter. Um, but yeah. And uh if you'd like, I, I want to give you the opportunity to talk about any of the non-Delta Green stuff that you're working on currently that you think is interesting. Because I know that you've got the uh, uh, the medical mystery game now, but if I recall correctly, and maybe this is me drastically misremembering, I believe on the RPPR design, game design show, you also mentioned working on a project, like a, a card-based RPG about being a resistance fighter who is engaging in a desperate last-ditch attempt to kill some type of final boss and annihilate yourself in the process? Um, that's Slingstone. Uh, we've, nice. we've done a, not, a number of playtests of that on uh, Heaven on Games Open Design. Um, it is a supers game, um, but it's an anti-supers game. Uh, you, you live in a superheroic world, you do not have superpowers, and in fact, you want to make sure that somebody who does dies. Um, and th that is the the premise. It is uh, You might think of it as the boys, if you want. Um, I was gonna. I was going to say it's... Um sounds like the dude from empowered who who killed all the capes in san antonio before the superheroes nuked it to put down the rebellion yeah and there's numbers like uh, the boys did it uh stormwatch team achilles was was another comic oh god stormwatch yeah. um it, uh, just about people who are you know trying to keep the reins on these things that are no longer human um so i'm trying on that it is a difficult design uh i am making it Settingless. So my my goal is to make it a toolbox for. I want to tell a story about extremely underpounded people who, through sheer force of will, uh, band together to take down a literally impossible foe. Um, as in, if you just go straight to the guy, I I want it to be mechanically certain that you will die, like because they have laser vision. <laughs> um, but I it it's my game about asymmetrical warfare and how much are you willing to give up. Um, I, I, we get a pretty sizable run, um, f using the profit system on my Heaven on Games Open Design Patreon, if you would like to go listen to that. Uh, but, uh, it's currently in between drafts because, you know, it's very hard to mechanically balance something that starts off at such a drastic power imbalance. Um, so I'm trying to make sure I get the, uh, character advancement and macro side of that. And the problem with that kind of stuff is that when you play test, you can only really play test in a campaign structure, which means you can spend a lot of time going down the wrong road. Um, but it'll, it'll come out eventually. Um, yeah, I, I'm messing with a card based system with that. 
Um, Heaven on Games just came out with Phase Anatomy, uh, and that is a fun two-hour pick-up-and-play, um, you know, very comedic, very uh, farcical RPG, um, but there is a pretty complex and difficult logic puzzle at the heart of it. Um, so that that's something else I do. Um, Beck once said that whenever he makes an album, he's always the next album is always va- his vacation from the one he's currently working on. That's why you get, like, you know... Um, paper tiger and sea change and like these ultimate sad acoustic values. And then the next album is like midnight vultures and it has sex laws on it and all these horn lines. Um, that that's often what I do in my work. Like Delta green can be kind of a bummer. Uh, red markets can be kind of a bummer to write. (laughs) Um, so when I don't want to do that, I'm working on a game where you cure fantasy diseases in a cartoon hospital or, um, I wrote No Soul Left Behind for uh, Greg Stolze's Better Angel System, which is about um, supervillains that run a charter school. Like, uh, yeah, I, <laughs> uh, I have it on games is always doing something. Sometimes it's darker like Red Markets. Sometimes it's lighter like FAM, uh, Phase Anatomy. But uh, I, I'm always waffling back and forth. I can't maintain the tone of God's teeth 24-7 or I'll go nuts. Um, so that that's sort of my approach to my own game design. I'm always bouncing back and forth between, uh, depending on what I'm working on. So yeah, I guess, uh, you know, what, uh, what do we not ask you that folks should know about you or what you're working on? Or Delta yeah, what's something stuff? that you wish people knew about your work that, we, that they don't? Um, yeah, I've got multiple Patreons. Uh, so I do, I do Delta Green stuff at Delta Green Dead Channels, but my own company, Heaven on Gains, has its own Patreon, and that's where we playtest our current projects so fam just came out the door i'm still working on slingstone uh i'm currently working on a psychedelic horror game so think uh mandy or altered states or jacob's ladder um very much about i took something i shouldn't have and now reality doesn't work anymore uh and we're playtesting all of those all the time i i am pretty open about my design process as i hope this interview reveals and so i just kind of reveal everything that i'm doing as i'm doing it and uh, I let fans inform what they think should happen next or um, see me eat shit and watch a design fall apart. Uh, it's fun either way. Um, and then I also have a pop culture comedy podcast called The Mix Six where we uh, review craft beers. We've been doing that for five years. I've had over a thousand. So um, if you want to hear me just talk about everything that's not RPG related. Uh, you could hear me there. I respect that you make indie games that are actually play-tested. Oh, thank you, yeah. Because I think that's probably the hardest part, besides having to sit through layout of RPG books. It's, it's definitely a gap in the market, I'll say that. I think, Yeah, I think there's a lot of professional games that are play-tested. Uh, Phase Anatomy went through a lot of versions. Um, it can auto-generate over 10,000 different diseases. Uh, and they all have their own unique six-symptom tag that you have to use to diagnose it, so... Uh, that that is very much my intentional design goal when I do a quote unquote indie game, like because I'm I'm not wild about the term uh, at all. <laughs> uh, you know, indie indie for a from a market perspective means you don't work for Watsi. Uh, congrats, you're indie. Um, so yeah, I I really like you know playing an indie game in that it can tell a story. Uh, it's not difficult or crunchy to get to a table. Um, but there's a game at Phase Anatomy. If you do not solve the puzzle, the patient will die, uh, just like doctors. Um, uh, and I, I consider Red Markets an indie game. It's 500 pages long, uh, but 
uh, I certainly didn't have a whole lot of corporate support in making it. How many? How, but Caleb, how many of those pages are just the Eclipse Face style lore filibuster? <laughs> uh, I don't know. Uh, I think there's. I mean, that still leaves you with 300 pages of mechanics. Yeah, there's two chapters. Yeah, there's 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 two lore chapters. There's a how did we get here history of the crash chapter, and then there is a uh, chapter about the world as it exists today with all the factions, and then there's a player chapter and a GM chapter. Yeah. So about half of it, and I'm putting out another lore book soon called Carrying Economy. So nice. Well, because I haven't read any of the Red Markets um, expansions, I've only played the base mm-hmm. game, so I can't I can't speak to um, what's in any other ones. But that was a game. I think I think I said this in the intro that I was very surprised was as much fun as it was because those the the zombies economics and resource management are things that I can't imagine people getting out of bed for, <laughs> but. When it all comes together, it is probably the best translation of the old school dungeon crawling experience where resource management and time management is actually important to a modern setting. Well, thank you. Yeah, the the goal was to um, make stuff matter, uh, as it often doesn't in an RPG, um, but right. do it in such a way where you're not counting individual bullets and it's a nightmare. Because so. <laughs> what it is is that it's it's one of the few games that understands... Players don't want to track resources that only, like, decline and punish them, but they're happy to track shit like potions that give them buffs and benefits. So the, so all he had to do was add the ability to gain benefits from spending additional rations and ammunition to do things, and suddenly it's fun. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, that was the goal. Uh, it, it's a materialist game. Um, every time I wrote a new edition of Red Markets during the uh, alpha playtesting, uh, it was a nightmare because I had to start with like the least fun part because I made the gear list first. Um. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I, 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 I straight up when I work on stuff, I won't write gear lists. I look for any way to just fob it off on somewhere else. Uh, like I'm, I'm doing my, mm-hmm. my like knockoff D20 OSR heartbreaker now. And it's just, and, and the, that section is just, yeah, look at one of these, look at one of these publicly available SRDs cause I'm not doing this. Yeah. It's the absolute worst. It's the pits. Um, but. Um, th- there's a certain brand of horror that we all live with, and uh, it's it's called you are your stuff. Like it doesn't matter how tough and strong you are, if you're fighting a monster, you need a gun, <laughs> and those cost money, and they take time to maintain, and you got to pay the suppressor tax. Yeah, uh, and uh, yeah, that's the world I live in, um, and it's pretty horrific all the time uh, when you don't have enough and you need that to survive. Um, so. I was really trying to convey that in a RPG setting. Um, and that comes from my teaching training, uh, doing a lot of poverty training, you know, reading a lot of Ruby Payne, uh, dealing with a lot of, uh, you know, underprivileged kids and families and just, you know, realizing the, the adventurer's mindset is alive and well in America. And it's, uh, beneath a certain, you know, income line because <laughs> you've, you've got to go do insanely dangerous shit like underwater welding or working an oil rig or roofing just to live another day. And, uh, that- there's a module I read just recently called, um, called unicorn meat. That's about a bunch of feral, ch- feral children trapped on a farm where they go out in the woods and they hunt unicorns because <laughs> ch- the unicorns don't like react badly to the kids. And the whole module is basically a commentary on how, the typical adventure mindset of I must become stronger, I must be able to violence the others and prevent them from violencing me and acquire the stuff to that I need to survive is basically the mindset of an abused child. Um, yeah, I, I could definitely see that. Uh, the, the Red Markets is very much about like being an adventurer would be terrible. You would want to do it as infrequently as possible and get done with it as quickly as possible. <laughs> but see, I think it's also about how 
dangerous stress is addictive because at the same time as going out in red marketing is very punishing mechanically, it is also rewarding in the sense that I spent a point of willpower and I made that man's head explode when he tried to harm me. Oh, I took his, I, I took everything that he had on his body, and now I have a, a so a super kick-ass piece of body armor. I have a thing that lets me connect to like the Bitcoin hot air balloon or whatever, <laughs> and that is that is a very Delta Green type of experience of the addiction to toxic stress that makes you keep doing it even when you don't need to. Uh, that's why in red markets we have Mr. Joel's. Just just one last score, yeah. Um, yes. And I've never, I've never known a campaign that didn't go for it, and I've never known a campaign where it didn't go poorly. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, because that is when the uh, the market can just lay everything they have on you. Game balance goes out the window. Uh, you've got to make hey, there's a reason nobody did this before you, and it's because it's gonna fucking suck. <laughs> um, and uh, yeah, almost everyone given the options, like hey, you have enough to retire, you could go you know, farm sweet potatoes six days a week in the enclave and they'll give you Sunday off and that'll be your life until somebody comes to rescue you or you can go uh, be a refugee over in the existing city state and, you know, slave away like everybody else, but nobody will be trying to eat you and uh, you won't have to worry about, you know, dying of a opportunistic infection because antibiotics don't exist anymore. Uh, And then all I have to do is say, or you could do this and be rich but it'll probably kill you. And by the time people get there, they almost always say, yeah, we're doing that. Um, yeah. Cause the, I mean, that is, that's the poverty mindset that that is how poverty works. You know, you know why you get the assholes in national review being like, well, if they would just stop and save, they could have a stock portfolio like mine that dad gave I always, me. I always imagined the average red markets character getting into like the a United States remnant and then like immediately becoming some kind of terrorist. Uh, yeah, that's a lot of people's retirement plan. Like, I have the money now. <laughs> Fuck you for making me do this. <laughs> right. Like, yeah. you know, you got to you got to eat while I was starving. Well, not anymore, bitch. Mm-hmm. Um, one of my favorite il- illustrations in the book uh, is uh, uh, Prismac Lek. He, he's not he's not drawn anymore. He had a, he had some kids, but uh, it's just a picture of a taker after retirement, and she's in like an evening gown with like a flute of champagne. And just like mournfully looking at a smartphone of her old crew, and like you can see her back, it's like tatted up and covered in scars and bite marks. But she's like, "I made it." Now all I can think about is how I made it. Like, yeah. My favorite illustration is the the one of the the cowboy on the horse picking up the kid, because that design of the cowboy was very similar to the like. I don't know if y'all y'all saw the pictures a while back of like the bot swan and metalheads. Uh, that's actually what we used. Yeah, that that is that. <laughs> that's yeah. cool. Uh, I, I love that. Um, entire look. Um, yeah, the for Red Marcus, we designed its own fashion. Like I've I've got a whole like art document of uh, anaclassism is what I call it. Uh, a mixture of high and low class signifiers because half your shit is looted from very nice places and the other half is like intensely functional homeless person wear. Um, yeah. So uh, yeah, that's all in that book. Mm-hmm. It's a very Blood Meridian feel. But that that's another that's another illustration by Prez. He did a great job on that. The dude who has the he's got he's got like the the nicest rifle ever, that anyone's ever seen, but it's basically just attached to his body by a piece of string because he just stole it and he didn't steal the sling with it. And then his his boots are nice, but his hat is literally rotten and falling off his head. Yeah, yeah, a a um Boston Dynamics drone hauling your shopping cart full of uh salvaged car batteries. Yeah, that- <laughs> it's like it's like um. Kevin, what's your favorite image from Star Wars? The 
the the hover rickshaw pulled by a droid. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I honestly think that's where the future's going, not zombies, but like, uh, you know, again, not to keep on mentioning conservative assholes, but like, you know, harping is like, oh, you don't have money for this, but you got money for a phone. Like, bitch, you try living without a phone. Like, get a job without the internet. Go out there. Give it a shot. Well, yeah, because phone, phones are, are just a widget, and one of the few things capitalism is really good at is making widgets cheaper, but you talk about fucking positional goods like housing that only ever increase yeah. in cost because it's a, both a speculative asset and something that people actually need. Yeah, but that... Well, telecoms that, companies make it easy to get phones, too, because they, they, they don't make you pay up front for them. Yeah, but there's there's kids in trailer parks with, you know, Oculus headsets because it's all they've ever asked yeah. for, and it's it's an escape, and, like, I think that's just going to be the future. It's going to be, you know... You ever read... A um, weird mix of class signifiers at all times because, um, you know, we keep on getting these magical, wonderful technology things that trickle down, and yet things never really get better. Um, so. there's, a, there's a book called, <laughs> called uh, River of Gods that posits that the ultimate cyberpunk society is actually India, and so you have all of these sections where it's like a a, a, a kebab, not a kebab. What do you call it? Uh, um, it's also some kind of food dish. But he he li- he's it's a, it's a story about a kid in a in a, a village that doesn't have running water. But he is a mercenary drone pilot who just as a hobby jacks into robots that all the very and and fights wars between the various city states that are you know battling over water in post collapse India. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh- I use crypto and stuff in uh, red markets, not aspirationally, but as an aspect of economic despair. But um, were that not co-opted by tech bro nonsense and, you know, just throwing carbon in the air crazy, like there's a lot of places where that would be wonderful. Like if you could just have an agreed upon currency locally, that is uh, also tamper proof. Um, But, you know, getting away from fiat, you know, there are many villages in India where that would be better than you know, the local currency there, you know, well, didn't, didn't the government do the thing where they demonetize one of the bills to fight counterfeiting, but they only gave people like a day to exchange. Oh yeah. The that, banks, that is which... one of the worst economic, uh, currency collapses in history. <laughs> yeah. Um, but you look at that, you look at, um, you know, a lot of stuff that the UN and has done with, um, micro loans and micro grants, like here's $500 to do whatever you want. And it ends up being, yeah. Uh, but yeah, now it's just pictures of dumb apes. Yeah, that you don't own, but think you do. Um. <laughs> Aren't we all dumb apes, though? Yeah, <laughs> some dumber than others. <laughs> <laughs> the real bored ape was inside us the whole time. <laughs> yeah. The the uh, the Somali currency, which is no longer backed by a central government and is apparently freely counterfeited, but still used as an actual currency because the level of counterfeiting is basically just people craft producing the bills. So it's not that distinct from just a normal rate of inflation that you see with any currency actually backed by a central government. Um, yeah, I, I did study a lot in economics to write red markets because while I wanted to, nice. while I wanted to have a game that's about poverty, about, you know, living close to the, you know, knife edge of capitalism, um, I also wanted to know what I was talking about. And one thing you understand when you study economics is that how much of it is bullshit, like <laughs> how much of it is just enforced and not like a rational science. And um, like, yeah, the currency has no value, but it still has value because people say it has value because no currency has value. <laughs> um, and it, how much of it makes very little sense and is accidental. I mean, you look at now the U.S. dollar is the world reserve currency for the world, but uh, a third to I think like I think we're up to like 40 percent of all dollars in current circulation um, were printed in the last 12 months. 
like there's an economic thing that says what's going to happen with that and it's it's mm-hmm, like mm-hmm. let's all take our deutschmarks to go buy a uh, single loaf of bread get the wheelbarrow let's, like, let's take our deutschmarks and burn them for fuel yeah exactly Funny, people um, talk about hyperinflation i'd listen to any of my boomer co-workers yeah exactly but <laughs> i listen to these people who for the last 20 years didn't say a peep when housing prices were skyrocketing but now want me to wipe up their fucking crocodile tears when suddenly things they like are getting more expensive. Yeah, but like the Fed's just now talking about starting to change the inflation rate, even though we're like 8.5%. And the thing is, is like, we should have collapsed already. Like, if this was Venezuela, it wouldn't be 8% anymore. If this was if this was India after devaluing a currency. But the problem is, is like, we are the world reserve currency for the United, the United States is the world reserve currency. Like, we are the most held foreign currency um, from especially China, I think China's got trillions in dollars now. Just, I think I think oh, yeah. Japan still actually holds more dollars than, yeah. than China does. Uh, the or maybe, maybe the dollar of reserve purchases. of Russia is the only thing helping it survive right now. And so, like, you get situations where, like, mathematically, this should no longer work. But <laughs> the U.S. has a bunch of guns, and it's got you over a barrel. So we're just going to choose that this inflation isn't going to crash the economy for as long as we possibly can. And that's economics. That's real economics. Um, the homo economicus of like, well, I got a formula that says <laughs> that if it goes up this many, then it's going to go down this many. Um, that's great, and it can help you predict certain stuff, but sometimes ShamWow sell, and it's just a cloth. <laughs> <laughs> like, um, humans are not rational actors, and uh, when you have these hard material realities interacting with these uh, dumb apes, some dumber than others, uh, it, it makes these bizarre situations of unreality and um, reality on hold and, uh, you know, extreme privilege and extreme deprivation. So There's a news headline that popped up in my feed this morning I just want to share because I think you'll laugh at it. The headline is, Bitcoin investors tend to have low financial literacy according to Bank of Canada research. <laughs> I, would, I would say so. I'm shocked. Yeah, my favorite part about the the crypt, as it's called in red markets, is that it started <laughs> off as the cryptocurrency scam as everybody else. But once fiat currency collapsed and the government actually started investing in it, it just became a new fiat currency under the same yeah. rules of currency. <laughs> it's just way yep. worse for the environment, um, which is is what every crypto dude is actually trying to go for with all their anti-libertarian stuff. If the Fed was just like, actually, we're going to buy this much cryptocurrency for this many millions of dollars in bonds, you think they'd be like, oh, no, well, I don't I don't go with your filthy representative democracy. I, I believe in the anarcho They would sell in a fucking heartbeat. <laughs> um, well, of course. Yeah. Because it's not worth anything if you don't sell yeah, exactly. it. Exactly. But um, yeah, that's the thing. Like, crypto's value right now is that it's not worth anything. And that makes it seem different. But the second it becomes actually worth something, guess what? It's now, it's in yeah. the same thing as everybody else. But the thing, the thing about your imaginary um, future money is that the reason why you can't one of the reasons why you can't really use most currently extant coins as money is that they're inherently deflationary mm-hmm. which means that if you spend them you are losing money mm-hmm. because you are losing the opportunity to just sit on it until it increases in value yeah the the 20 dollars you uh exchange today buys 19 dollars tomorrow yeah but i i guess the um the people in the red markets universe have a different value of time because they're dealing with more immediate concerns that don't have the ability to sit on a speculative asset yeah and if you just train the debt it doesn't deflate like because if you don't give it to the lender of last resort the u.s government who then turns it into their you know bounty and pretend they have a census anymore (laughs) 
and know where everybody's at and what they're doing. Uh, as long as you don't do that, but you say, I have the value, I could turn that in at any point, and then this money would come to you. Well, now you're just trading on debt, and that's the entire economy anyway. Yeah. Yeah, folks, you're listening to the Economics Box, the now, podcast well, you got, about currency. You all uh, got me talking about it. What do you expect? <laughs> yeah, yeah, well, 500 so, pages about it, plus. Like, um, yeah. So my, 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 my personal feeling about red markets is that the stuff that you created for like the actual gameplay side of it and a lot of the storytelling through mechanics, like the shit with the driver's licenses being used as currency, is great. I have never met a single person except for the guy who wrote the review on Fatal and Friends who has actually read the lore section. Yeah, okay. <laughs> it's pretty good. I worked real hard on it. <laughs> I think, well, here's the thing. I think that, that, that your ability, the, the way that you actually translated all that shit to stuff that is player directly player experienced is a thousand times better than just having a, a, a document that tells a story. Cause like use the driver's license as money. That is an instant, that is an instantly like iconic thing about your setting. Well, thank you. Um, you. You mentioned dungeon crawling, and I really think that's where it came from. I, I don't think there is a there is a meta plot to red markets. I don't care if you ever use it. I don't care if your loss is on the east of the Mississippi instead of west of the Mississippi. I, I, you know, it, the game works all the same. The reason I included all that is that in order to tell an economic story, you have to have context of like who has supply, who has demand. Um, so the the main issue is that is that we talk about dungeon crawling. In, in your traditional fantasy expression, you go down in the hole, you kill the kobolds, you take their gold. Why do the kobolds have gold? What are they using it for? <laughs> like, what is it exchanged to? What is that gold just, are you on a currency? Like, there's all sorts of questions you have to ask in world build. Um, and, yeah. and when you come to the economic thing in in most fantasy games it's just not done the sword always costs 15 gp kobolds are descended from dragons and dragons just like to hoard assets yeah it's it's, <laughs> an, it's a, just a, an instinctive like it's like it's like uh it's like keen said they've got that animal spirit that gives in their acquisitive nature yeah but then you but then you take your gold to the local village and you fence it and then you, you it's just like victory you did it you don't collapse that village's economy because you just <laughs> printed two hundred thousand new currency units for them. my contention after playing pathfinder society is that the role of the quote-unquote adventurers guild is essentially just to act as a as a bank that's 90% of its function because the majority of places in your in your fantasy medieval world don't have enough actual currency uh -huh. to purchase any of the treasure that you recover. Yeah, so, nobody can afford a thousand GP plus one sword when your average farmer makes 12 yeah. gold in so, a year. So the function of the Adventurer's Guild is essentially to act as both a bank but also as a fence mm -hmm. that they know that the adventurers aren't going to actually be able to auction all the wealth themselves. They buy it at a at a fraction of its value just no questions asked with the with the assumption that they've got enough res enough currency in reserve to cover the loss until they can resell it at a higher price to someone who actually wants it. So in a way all of this stuff that seems like kind of stupid as hell like you know why is there why is there a pathfinder society why is there an organization that that like cuts me a check every time I recover treasure and just gives me the approximate assessed value. Well, it's it's like the East India Company. It's 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 early it's early mega capitalism injecting itself into your medieval fantasy mm -hmm. world. Yeah, and it, yeah, everything has like a Walmart stable price. It's not bartered up and down. It's not traded, you know. Um 
And the thing is, I don't think that's stupid. I just don't think it can tell a certain type of story. And the thing about a lot of fantasy dungeon crawling is that it tries to tell that story with that exact motivation that it can't do. I need to go do this insanely dangerous thing because I need the money. Like, that's why you go in the hole. Like, Torchbearer, that, that's my favorite thing Torchbearer does. It's like, you go in that because they you don't have a choice. Like, it's that or die. Um, but the problem with a lot of that storytelling where you have the economic motivation is that the prices never change. Like, what happens if I don't kill those skeletons and steal their gold? Nothing. My family doesn't die. I don't get imprisoned in the debtor's jail. Like, it's a fantasy universe. So when I did Red Markets, uh, I did go focus on the lore and gave as much context to it as possible. Because when you want to write a game for Red Markets, when you want to write a dungeon crawl, you just look around you. Like, where is value in your life? Like, where do they keep it? Like, um, and because that's the dungeon now. Like, whatever that building is, that's the dungeon now. Like, uh, so I, 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 I mean... There's a ton of red market scenarios that are just places around my town. You, you I, heard it here first, folks. Red markets is the RPG equivalent of making your first Doom map based on your school. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, yeah, like uh, I have a scenario set in a local mega church by my house. I have a scenario set in local colleges nearby. Like, um, yeah, because that that is that is the area, and um, it just it just. For me, I think it, a lot of if the markets are doing it right, it makes for a richer dungeon crawling experience. You the the shape of the building becomes very important for creative decisions that the players can make. The physical location, the type of value becomes very important for like how you're fencing it and why you're doing it and what your motivation for. And then the system is about um, maintenance. It's about decay. Like the second you're not earning, you're losing. Like just just in regular life, uh, your your things are getting worse. Your your upkeep is getting higher. Um, and I think that's what you need to tell a story about people motivated by harsh circumstances rather than just the fact, well, we want to be cool and do adventurous stuff. And so we're going to make up the excuse of like, I got a bill to pay. And that's why we go kill the Lich King. Um, and, uh, I, I find Red Markets, uh, speeds that up because you don't have to build an entire fantasy setting. Um, the setting of Red Markets is about looting the value of the old world and you know where that value's at and, uh, you know what it looks like and where you'd go find it. Uh, and then from there, it's just putting monsters in hallways. Yeah. I think that is the reason why people like apocalypse stories is that's the, essentially the, basic activity of hunting and gathering but you get to just steal all of the shit from the ruins of civilization mm -hmm. so you get to go to you get to go to the liquor store and whatever wasn't taken by looters is now yours you get to go to the to the to the firearms place you get to go to hanford and steal the reprocessed fuel you get you can do do you can take any of those like very primitive idle fantasies and instantly convert to an adventure uh yeah and um as in the real world, the the problem with the apocalypse is that it's never evenly distributed. Um, and uh, yeah, that that's the other thing I like about Red Markets. It's going to impose on you the logic of old capitalism, even you, even though you are living in a world of subsistence farming, or um, you're, you've become socialist in the enclave, or uh, you know all these other things that would make a lot more sense for your environment, considering how badly you were let down by capitalism. And considering um, how, how much danger you're in in your current environment, uh, but the problem is, is that somebody's still doing okay, and they got money that you need, and so you're gonna do their dumb shit, um, which is a lot how many places in the real world work. Let's see, I'm, gonna, I'm looking at our at our notes document to see if there's anything else we want, we really wanted to. Well, I got one last one Please. to hit. Uh, Caleb, uh, Max, and I did a one-off uh, spitball episode where we just yacked about like the Fermi paradox. Mm -hmm. 
as a man who is immersed in science fiction and horror tropes, uh, what's what's your take on the Fermi paradox? Like, um, why it exists? Like, yeah. Uh, what's what's your answer to the Fermi paradox? I I, I don't know. Uh, I worry that we never will know. In fact, I highly suspect we will never know. That's that's the only honest answer, really. <laughs> I think it's probably a great filter scenario, but um, uh, I don't think the great filter is anything cool. Like the Trisolarans are going to shoot us with a kinetic <laughs> kill weapon. Um, I think it's the the great filter is the fact that by the time you start developing the technology that gets you off world, which is necessary for a spacefaring civilization that we would be able to see, um, you have done something horrendous to your environment that can't be undone. So I think we're probably living through it now. That's, that's my base, uh, reading of it. I think it's even more boring than that. I think the Drake equation just overestimates how likely habitable planets are. I think that the great filter is just like developing past single cells. I, I agree with that. Uh, I also think about dissipative adap- adaptation, though. Um, yeah. Uh, you know, when you, you know, which is, if you're not aware, is the physics explanation for evolution. Like, why is there life? And the mm. basic premise is that life uh, increases entropy in a system because it is chaotic um, and digesting other things and shattering them apart. And since entropy can only go up in a system, um, once you have life, it doesn't go away very easily uh, because it is... Uh, increasing the entropic rate the chaos in the system um so i think i think there is something that makes life i I do think there is a physical process as little as we understand it call it god whatever you want that that makes life in other places um regardless of we can recognize it or it's habitable to us like that is that is the question um but that said uh uh, there's some serious we're running into them right now there's some serious obstacles in uh you know mm-hmm. becoming a spacefaring civilization not the least of the fact that space is deadly af um so yeah I, I agree with dennis i do hope that elon musk gets to mars just to bake alive in gamma radiation that would be <laughs> as i die on a blackened sea uh in on earth choking on gas i just want to think about him up there uh being microwaved <laughs> and that's the only good take dennis has had on twitter <laughs> yeah <laughs>